would like to buy your own copy of Queer Data, go to the Bloomsbury website and use code POD35 followed by your respective country code US, UK, CA, AU, depending on where you're located. How do we decide who counts? Kevin Guyon, queer author, activist and scholar, joins us to discuss his latest book, Queer Data, using gender, sex and sexuality data for action to break down how data shapes the world around us and how we, in turn, shape it. Numbers, after all, can hold an entire history of power and politics. We turn to Kevin's experience with the film and television industry to discuss the limitations of using quantitative data to represent and solve problems, and more broadly, the complications behind using language to represent identity and lived experience. Take a listen. Welcome to the Bloomsbury Academic Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Rebecca Morofsky. And I'm your other host, Wayming Cam. And today we're speaking to Kevin Guyen, the author of Queer Data, Using Gender, Sex, and Sexuality Data for Action. Welcome to the show, Kevin. To be totally honest with you, I know data is a huge part of my life, but I don't completely understand it. And I'm queer, so it's just, I'm really excited to have you demystify this whole concept for us. Perfect. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm looking forward to speaking. Just so we're all on the same playing ground. This first question is twofold. What is queer data? And on the flip side of that, in its verbal sense, what does it mean to queer data? The book kind of looks at the idea of queer data in two ways. So one strand is around kind of data about queer communities. So very broadly, LGBTQ communities mainly focusing on quantitative data, so numerical data about health, education, housing, and kind of what data exists and what's out there. So that's kind of one strand of queer data. The second and maybe more interesting strand is around the kind of queering of methods, approaches, views, ideas about how we go about collecting, analyzing, and using data. And this second strand for me is really exciting because it brings in the politics, the power, and the history about who's collecting data, how are people using it, who's involved in these conversations, and who is ultimately excluded. And I think the second strand has repercussions for data about non-LGBTQ communities as well. So more broadly thinking about how do we use data for all of our communities to change lives and use data in ways that brings about benefits. I would love to know how the collection of data shapes people's perceptions of their own identity and their own communities, and also vice versa. I suspect that things like language and culture have a huge impact on both of those questions as well. So if you could talk about that, that'd be great. I think for me, in the book, I write about how the relationship between LGBTQ communities and data, it's kind of a two-way street. So data both is shaped by and shapes LGBTQ communities. And just to kind of share a few of those examples, as I'm sure we'll speak about a bit more, in the UK, in Scotland, and across the wider UK, there's been national censuses have taken place in the past couple of years with new questions on sexual orientation and transgender identity. And for me, I'm really interested in what the asking of those questions means for queer communities. What does it mean to be a young trans person growing up in the highlands of Scotland and being asked a question about whether or not you identify as trans and whether or not the kind of asking of that question in some way shapes or changes the groups under discussion? This is kind of, not to get too philosophical, but kind of a bigger question in science and technology studies about how the work of the researcher or the person doing the kind of investigation in a way changes or has influence on the thing being investigated or the thing being under the kind of microscope. So I think that two-way street between LGBTQ communities and data is really key and kind of shows the agency and the kind of power of the things going in both directions. 
you mentioned it already, just working on the Scottish census, the philosophical question of who's doing the research conducting and who is their subject. I think that's such an important question when these methods have sociopolitical impact on everybody. You know, they have legislative consequences for citizens. And so you were very involved in the most recent Scottish census. I was wondering if you could speak to that experience and if you feel there's something that can't totally be quantified in identity. Yeah, big question. In Scotland, just to kind of very, very quickly say what's happened in the past few years. So census takes place every 10 years. Earlier this year, the Scottish census took place with two new questions, one asking about sexual orientation and one asking about a person's trans status or history, whether or not somebody identifies as trans. So I was involved in some of the discussions and some of the kind of engagement from academics and researchers in designing and kind of providing consultation and feedback into the design of these questions. What became really clear to me throughout the design process was that this wasn't an objective exercise. There wasn't one way of doing it. There wasn't one way of asking questions about whether or not somebody's LGBTQ. And it became really clear that this was a question of power, of politics, of history. It was telling one story. It was presenting one representation of the world around us. So for me, it was really interesting to think about whose representation of the world is being brought into the light and whose representation is maybe being pushed further into the shadows. I think where we've landed is quite exciting. I think it's quite an exciting time to have this new question asked. But what I've been really keen to also stress, both in the book, alongside my wider work, is that this kind of increased visibility does come with some potential harms as well. So I'm really keen to look at, within the broader LGBTQ umbrella, who's kind of being brought more into spotlight and who's maybe being pushed further into the shadows. So thinking of kind of who's minoritized within uh, minority communities, I think is really key when we think about queer data. When it comes to data and sociopolitical impact, I think about that a lot with regards to cultural industries as well in the last couple of years, and also academia, when it comes to also things like diversity and inclusion initiatives, for example. A lot of the time when it comes to those institutions saying that they're going to, A, acknowledging that they have a problem, and then B, saying, we're going to do something about it. If it's not lip service, a lot of the time it feels like they're focusing a lot only on the numbers and on particular types of numbers as well. So for example, when it comes to our industry, publishing, I've seen a lot of like institutions, like the big publishing companies, they will say, oh, we've got after a lot of consultation. We've come up with this particular number that we want, say, people of colour to like come up to after a particular amount of time. It's very interesting to me to see what numbers they've picked. For example, people of colour in the UK, there's a few big companies that have said after so-and-so years, it's going to be 15% or something, just because that's like a number for how many people of colour there are roughly in the UK. But for me personally, like a lot of the publishing companies in the UK are based in London, where the percentage of people of colour is something like 40%, which is much, much bigger. And so it's very clear to me when it comes to things like data and, for example, how that's used in diversity and inclusion initiatives, the choices of the people of power are very important. And also like what they don't choose also says something as well. What's your experience been like working with like universities and other organisations on these initiatives? Because from this perspective, from my perspective in a slightly different industry, it's just something that I find really interesting as someone who doesn't work specifically in that area. 
What a fantastic question. Thank you. I think you've picked out so many threads and so many dangers, I think, of being over-reliant on numerical diversity or numbers as a means to fix problems. So I think there's a few strands to your question. I think one strand is how we go about using data, using numerical data in particular, to construct problems or things perceived as problematic by people in positions of power. In my kind of more recent work and some ideas I'm kind of thinking through at the moment, I'm trying to think about kind of which problems are brought to the table, which things are established as problems, whether it's in the publishing industry, in universities, in higher education or other sectors, and which things are kind of unfathomable or off the table for being targeted or being addressed. And we see that both in higher education and cultural industries around this drive to maybe focus on gender and then the focus will move on to race and then maybe disability and this very kind of fleeting focus on certain problems, but maybe not taking a step back and zooming out and thinking, what are the structural challenges here which are kind of perpetuating these issues? I think another kind of challenge or danger that you flagged with your question is about this reliance or this kind of setting of diversity targets. If we can kind of quantify the problem and kind of increase the numbers, then that will somehow fix it. Some of my concerns I find in my recent work, which is actually in the film and television industry with my current job at the University of Glasgow, is what happens when we start to see the numbers in certain industries matching their targets. An area I'm particularly interested in is representation of LGBTQ people in the film and television industry. So if a television company sets target for 5% of its workforce being LGBTQ, and it turns out that actually 8% of its workforce are LGBTQ, but within that it's mainly gay men, what happens next? Is the logical next step of the organisation to reduce that number? Is the logical next step to cut funding for specific services, to cut support for LGBTQ staff networks? Can the organisation say the job is done because that target has been met? And I think we're seeing similar concerns around these kind of diversity targets. When we look at the state of UK politics and the race to become the next British Prime Minister, again, a very racially diverse field. But again, that's not getting at the heart of the problem around addressing social justice and equality matters in a meaningful way. So I think your question has just kind of triggered so many thoughts in my head and I think it gets at the heart of the limitations of maybe more mainstream approaches to equality, diversity and inclusion work. Something sparked off in my mind when Ming was talking too. I think that under capitalism, we live in such a data-driven world that we're not totally aware of all of the ramifications of these numbers of how like it not showing up in the data might mean somebody loses funding. It means somebody might lose representation. And it ironically works against these DI initiatives that have been programmed in the first place. What's so hard about this question for me is that, as you've brought up, Kevin, I think data just mingles pretty much in every crevice of our life. So it's hard sometimes to locate a focus in this conversation. But I was wondering if it's possible if we could like zoom out a little bit because we've been talking about cultural institutions and higher education and local politics. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about some global examples of how we use data related to gender, sex, and sexuality. First of all, what are some of the problems there that maybe you've already spoken to in the, in the local context? And then how are some of the ways we can kind of change that? Yeah, so the book mainly predominantly focuses on LGBTQ lives in the UK. I have one chapter looking at some really interesting developments taking place around the world. But I think this broader question of the relationship between data and identity is universal. 
these discussions are taking place in some shape or form across every culture, every society across the world. And what I think is particularly interesting is to think about how whether what we're looking for across these different contexts is how we kind of reframe or re-understand the relationship and the role of numerical data in policymaking, in politics, in developing evidence base for action, and maybe challenging some of our assumptions about the role of quantitative data in these spaces. So in the book, I look and I showcase some examples of some quite interesting and innovative developments in the US around their censuses in the past, I think, 20 to 30 years, which haven't asked or don't ask an explicit question on sexual orientation or on gender identity, but have asked questions about whether or not you're in a same-sex relationship. And again, thinking through the problematic nature of that question, when it may be used as a proxy for people who are LGB or LG, and again, kind of who is that bringing into spotlight and who is that pushing into the shadows? Who is more likely to be married or in a same-sex relationship and who's less likely to be in that situation? And some of the mess around that question in the US census in recent years. I think some other really interesting developments taking place in other countries are the asking of questions about trans status or gender identity in Central and Southern America, as well as countries including Nepal, India and Pakistan. So I think it's really important for listeners in the UK to remember that although the UK has asked this question, it's by no means the first country in the world to ask a census question to identify the size of its trans population. There's a far longer history of that taking place, as I mentioned in Nepal, India, Pakistan, and several South American countries. So I think it's been interesting for me to kind of step outside the bubble and remember that there isn't a one-size-fits-all model for any of these approaches across different national contexts. But the similar themes and similar challenges are presenting themselves around the globe. Yeah, with regard to global examples of data, so you've gone over other areas and countries and how they collect data and when. Obviously, data doesn't just like travel across borders without any consequences. I think, as we all know, historically from things like anthropology, eugenics, et cetera, et cetera. In a sort of contemporary sense, then, like, have you encountered in your work what happens when queer data like basically encounters things like national security and borders. I think a lot of people know that it's not just about migration, it's also about capital when it comes to borders. But there's something that I haven't really thought about a lot is like how data and specifically queer data interacts with that. I touch on that slightly in the book around the kind of migration of data across different borders. I think maybe within that there's a question about how do we categorize, how do we manage difference and often from dealing with borders, dealing with national security, that's often the sharp edge of some of these questions, just to kind of signpost some work by figures like Toby Bouchamp and Sasha Constanza Chalk who've written around the challenges that people who have maybe identities or bodies that don't fit with neat categories are harassed and intimidated at immigration settings, airports, border controls, these types of locations and settings. I think it goes back to that kind of broader question about how do we conceptualize and how do we manage difference and how do those different ways of thinking about difference translate across borders. And I think it's really important as well to remember that this isn't just kind of philosophical conversing on the topic. For many people, these are life and death situations. These are decisions about who's in, who's out, who's counted, who's not counted, whose asylum application is approved and whose application is declined. All of these questions rely on ideas of categorization, ideas of identity, ideas of kind of who is determined, who is counted as a kind of meaningful subject across these different spaces and places. 
So I think for me, it's really interesting, as I mentioned, Career Data's main focus is around developments within the context of the UK. But I'm sure for anybody within the UK who's kind of answering an equality diversity monitoring form for their employer or registering with a new doctor or signing up for a university form and will kind of be presented with a list of identity monitoring questions with different response options, how they might not fit if you're from outside of the UK. There might be options there which seem strange or don't kind of fit your lived experience. And I think living in a kind of global world, this kind of national approach to different approaches to categorizing identity is only going to kind of encounter more and more challenges as time develops. It's a tricky situation because no one is suggesting we don't have any kind of a TSA or some kind of security when we go through airlines. But I appreciate what you're saying about how, especially on a global scale, when we try to manage difference and capture that in ways that are quantifiable, you can come across all of these complexities that marginalize people further and almost act as like a digital panopticon, if you will. Like I think, including myself, my relationship to data is just this idea of somebody watching me, of somebody mining my entire identity and using that for kind of capitalist gains or for more pernicious reasons. I think I know that this was a huge issue in airports a while ago, four or five years ago, of just trans people, or I mean, I guess this has been an issue for a long time, just trans people trying to go through airport security and having people complicating their genitalia not matching up with their identity. Has that like improved at all over the last couple of years? It's not an area of expertise for me, but what I would say is I think with all of these institutions and systems, whether it's airport security or the questions we ask in diversity monitoring forums, is whether or not these systems can be reformed or whether ultimately they need to be abolished. So we can devise new technologies, new ways of capturing data. We can devise more accurate questions, more efficient means of determining who may or may not be a security risk. But ultimately, it's unclear to me whether some of these systems can be fixed or whether some of them are beyond fixing. And I think in those working with kind of in the space around critical data studies, this is a key question, whether these data systems are capable of being reformed, whether we can design them in a way that are going to be fair, that are going to be unbiased, that are going to be non-discriminatory, or if ultimately the structures of these systems are inherently going to disadvantage some communities. And if so, whether there's an argument for abolishing or not engaging with these systems. So currently, I'd say I'm kind of a bit on the fence. I think some data collection systems give the benefit of the doubt, something like a census, I kind of see if it'll work, these new questions in Scotland and the UK. But ultimately, if I find that in 10 years time, none of this data has been used to positively improve the lives of LGBTQ communities, I might be arguing, actually, we shouldn't be engaging, we shouldn't be sharing our data, and we should not be participating in these data collection exercises. That's kind of connected to my other question of just, obviously, we can come across all these points where data collection can be quite problematic. We're talking about it in terms of how it affects citizens and people on the individual scale. But I'm as an activist, as an organizer, you're talking about how you've used this data collection to affect real change in Scotland. But I'm wondering if as an organizer, you could speak to the ways in which data collection might actually be harmful to activism at large. I often find myself speaking really negatively about data and most kind of talks or discussions I do around career data. There's many benefits to data, there's many strengths and many uses for data. But I think what's often missing from these conversations is that kind of critical or that contrarian voice to kind of flag some of the dangers or harms that come from just kind of having a blinkered 
approach to data. I think for activists, there are really big risks about being overly reliant or being overly trusting in the benefits of data. So maybe just to flag some of the potential challenges or dangers. I write about in the book how data collection is a really resource-intensive activity. So whether you're an activist group looking to do a community survey or you're a massive health organization looking to do a super-duper five-year research exercise, all of these projects require time, money, emotional labor, and energy. So I think what's really key for us all to think about in whatever space we're working is whether that's the best use of our energy and the best use of resources or whether that time and money could be spent doing other projects that are maybe having bigger or more impactful change in the real world. I write about in the book how data in itself, the collection analysis data in itself, isn't necessarily shifting the dial in terms of improving people's lives on the ground, producing really jazzy Excel tables or an amazing published glossy report on its own isn't going to be changing or addressing issues of homophobia, biphobia, transphobia. It might be a stepping stone towards that, but on its own, it's not the end goal. So I think for activists, they need to be really conscious and aware of when do we have enough data about the problem under investigation. And if so, if we do have enough data, should we be using our resources, our time, our energy to be getting on with fixing the problem? And I think that kind of mindfulness of the volume of data we need isn't always there with some work, whether it's among activists or within policymakers, governments, or larger organizations. And I think for me, increasingly, to go back to the previous discussion about institutional approaches to quality, diversity, inclusion, increasingly, I do see data operating as a distraction, as an easy solution to complaints or an easy solution to challenges around social justice or inequality that it's far easier to commission a study or to engage to spend $10,000 on a research project than it is to actually think, how do we get to the bottom of that issue and actually put in interventions and initiatives that will solve the problem rather than provide more information about the problem. That's something that I think about a lot too when it comes to publishing, not to bring our industry back into this. I think, yes, you're right, like data is used a lot for, oh, we're going to advance the number of people in certain marginalized communities. And that is the only way that problem can be solved. Or it's like the major way that we see that that problem, as it were, can be solved. But with not just publishing, but other cultural industries as well, like I see a lot of industry-wide censuses being like sent out like time and time again. And every time it feels like there's only like a minuscule amount of progress. I think at some point, you know, for people who stay in the industry for like their entire life, that data ceases to become important because it doesn't feel like there's a lot of change happening because it feels like there's cycles of the data always stays the same, despite all of these initiatives being announced. And uh, that's a problem. Sorry, I think about this a lot. Same. Or you have a company, (laughs) probably can't say this, but yeah, you have a company that brings in a bunch of data analysts to analyze a situation and they give you a solution that is proved by the data and give you a number of things to improve that situation. And then the company looks at the data and says, nah, we're not going to do anything about it. And I think it goes back to your previous answer around kind of the relationship between data and LGBTQ communities being a two-way street. So what I am also concerned about is when we have more and more data about things understood as problematic or problems, these are often really negative stories or negative experiences around bullying harassment, around maybe being overlooked for promotion, having really negative experiences in the workplace. 
And if all of the data on, say, to use your example, LGBTQ people in the publishing industry, if all of the existing data is telling a really negative story, what impact might this have on the community in terms of being presented as damaged or deficient or when all of the data isn't telling the rounded picture of people's lives, but it's only kind of describing these quite negative or harrowing experiences. I think this can have an impact on how that group or that community is perceived by the wider industry. And I think that's a real challenge for me as well. We don't tend to collect data about the joys, the creativity, the fun, the happiness of LGBTQ lives. The data we collect is often really negative data. And I think that has potentially negative ramifications for how these groups are understood, presented, conceptualized within the industry. And I think that's something I'd love to end the kind of capture of more and more data about quite negative and damaging experiences. I would love to know, how would you capture queer joy? I mean, I love that, but I'm also like, how would that work in your head? I don't know. I love the idea. And I know there's some people writing about it and exploring about it and kind of it's a growing area of kind of investigation. I don't know whether an employer or an institution or an organization would commission a study to capture queer joy. I would love them to do it, to actually ask their LGBTQ workforce, share your quantities of data about happiness, about creativity, about joy, about things that make you kind of feel excited and enthused during the day, rather than tell us all about your experiences of being bullied, harassed, discriminated against. I would love for the dial to switch and for us to have more and more quantitative data about queer joy. I don't know if that will ever happen, but I think that might fix some of the challenges or risks about data kind of supporting a deficit model approach or painting these communities as damaged in some way. I mean, I would personally love that just because I think those experiences of joy, of subverting the norm, define my life so much more than the sort of otherness that I've been made to feel as a queer person. And so it would be really great to not like our film industry, like books. I mean, everything's moving in this direction of just my life is not a tragedy. They don't have to be a tragedy. And sometimes I think the world can reflect that. But that's sort of connected to something I've been stewing on in this conversation of just for me, queerness is about subverting normative categories. It's about transcending past a binary, which sometimes feels like a little bit of a contradiction with data collection, which is so definitive, so binary. So I think just for me, I'm wondering, I mean, you've asked this before, why are we expected to collect and present data as a prerequisite for change, right? I'm wondering, given all of those things about queerness, and we've talked already about the limitations, the sort of insidious nature of data. But on the flip side of that, do you feel like given that relationship between queerness and data, there's a possibility for it to liberate us? Wow. Another big question. Can data liberate us? (laughs) I don't think it can liberate us. No, would be my short answer. My longer answer would be, I think it has a role to play in early stages. I think data is definitely pivotal in developing that evidence base, both quantitative data and qualitative data, those testimonies, those stories, those lived experiences. I think they have a real role to play in kind of getting that evidence base together, in changing hearts and minds to an extent and to a degree. But for me, it's not the end goal. In the book, I write about how we imagine a society with the most detailed, the most comprehensive, the most kind of far-reaching data set about LGBTQ communities. That society won't necessarily be the best place for LGBTQ folk to live and to grow up and to experience their lives. So I think there's a disconnect between the detail and the quality of data versus how that translates into real world experiences. 
So I would say, no, it's not going to liberate us. I think it has a role to play. But also, data can also play a role in preventing that liberation, in kind of providing distractions, providing excuses for those in positions of power to avoid taking action. And I think data as a stalling technique or data as a distraction is something that we all need to be mindful of among those who are kind of working towards a more socially just future. So I think data is definitely double-edged. I think with all of these questions around visibility, around representation, around data, they have good points, but they also have bad points. And I think it's important for us to be mindful when we're engaging in these discussions and sharing information about our lives and our experiences to be mindful of what we're giving away and the potential benefits, but also the potential risks of that. In that case, then, are there, and if so, what are any key ways where you think specifically queer data can be used much more responsibly by not just activists, but also scholars, researchers? And I think given the media direction or the mainstream media direction coverage of specifically trans issues over the last couple of years, also by journalists. So can queer data be used more responsibly? And if so, in what ways? Yes, I think for me, probably one answer to this is thinking about the use or the usability of data. So in queer data, it's kind of the book's broken up into three sections. So there's one section on collection, one section on analysis, and one section on use. And increasingly, I feel we don't speak enough about that third section around how we use data how data can be used for good intentions, but also for bad intentions as well. And I think in this kind of idea about how we go about using data, we can sometimes think kind of strategically about this as well. So in the book, I write about how in some situations, I might not mind being miscategorized or having my experience slightly miscounted in the data if I know that that data can be used in a way that strategically is going to bring about more gains that will improve the lives of LGBTQ folk. And I think that use bit, I think, is really key for thinking, how do we go about challenging some of these issues, both in the context of the UK, the US and further afield around this kind of politics and some of the increasing backlash around approaches to data, particularly for the trans communities and people who are non-binary as well. We see quite a lot of that taking place. One other solution I kind of look in the book is kind of asking again, who is in the room where decisions are made? So who is in the spaces? Who is at the table? making decisions about how a question is being designed, what the response options are, whether or not we even need to ask this question in the first place. Are the people in the room, do they have sufficient lived experience or expertise of the topic under investigation? And if not, should they be in that space? So just very briefly, in regards to Scottish Census, I do write about how there was one politician on the committee who had oversight of the design of the questions on sexual orientation and trans status who had only recently became familiar with the term cis. And he openly admitted this in Parliament. And again, it made me think, if this is a new idea to a a parliamentarian, should that parliamentarian really be in a position of power making decisions about how to count the trans population? Thinking about who's in the room where decisions are made and who has a competency to be making these decisions is also key to the future work around data, I think, going forward. Yeah, I think that's all too common, the idea of, unelected group of people with unchecked power making decisions about all of our bodies having no consequence to their own. I know that all too well. As an American, not to make it about that, but I feel like the ways that we all interact with sort of like the geopolitical landscape, it can be really frustrating. And I think throughout this whole conversation, we've been talking about how you can collect queer data 
but the sort of representational issues and identity issues that can come up when you involve yourself in this practice. I'm wondering, with all of those things that we've been talking about, is there any other final thoughts about something that we haven't talked about before in this conversation? Or was there something in the book that was left out that has come up since the book's publication that you feel is really important to talk about as an addendum to just Queer Data as a book? So it was quite challenging near the tail end of when I was writing the book and when I'd submitted the manuscript to the publisher and then just me being terrified with some massive queer data development before the book came out. I didn't want to write something that would expire as soon as it was published. So I tried to very much keep the arguments and discussions applicable across a range of different contexts and kind of not necessarily time stamped at the date of publication. However, since coming out, it's been really clear to me that a lot of the arguments in the book are extremely timely. And if anything, some of my warnings or some of my kind of concerns that kept me awake at night have only became more and more apparent. So I mentioned earlier around some of the limitations of diversity, for example, and how actually having a more diverse workforce or a more diverse senior leadership team isn't necessarily going to solve many of the structural or institutional problems that we see impacting the lives and experiences of minoritized communities. So, for example, again, to kind of highlight the situation in the UK around the kind of the leadership context to be the next UK prime minister. Again, this is a very racially diverse pool of candidates, but this would not be a pool of candidates who I think are kind of espousing a politics that align with anti-racism or kind of things to advance a kind of social justice agenda. So I think thinking through some of the limitations of diversity and thinking through how diversity can sometimes present as a smokescreen or kind of mask more fundamental issues. I think another area that's become really clear to me since the book came out, and I would love to have written more of it in the book and kind of thinking through what can I write next on this topic, is around institutional resilience. So by that, I mean how do institutions, whether it's universities, whether it's healthcare providers, whether it's law enforcement agencies, How do they respond to the increasing prevalence of anti-LGBTQ attacks around data and administrative systems? Are they strong enough to be able to push back or are they going to buckle at the first challenge they receive around how they collect data about gender, sex or sexuality? And I think what's really key and what I hope to develop in the next few years is strengthening the resilience of institutions to be able to push back and to kind of identify what are legitimate concerns and what are anti-LGBTQ attacks around how we collect data about gender, sex and sexuality. I think for me, administrative practices and data maybe are kind of mistakenly understood as quite being quite boring or being apolitical or ahistorical, whereas for me, I see them as all about power, all about politics and all about history. And I think that, if anything, has become even more clearer since the book came out. So I'm definitely keen to write more and to kind of explore this topic in more detail and hope that more of these warnings from the book don't materialize in reality. Yeah, you've given us a lot to chew on. I really can't wait for you to come up with that new book because I think it's such a logical next step to what you've already written. Fingers crossed the things that keep you up at night don't totally come to fruition, but I guess we'll just have to find out in your next book. Thank you so much, Kevin, for being on the show. This has been really eye-opening for me, and I feel like I have had this whole, just like I said at the very beginning of this conversation, data is this big scary thing that I don't completely understand. So it's really helpful to have you break it down and understand how it involves all of us. (laughs) 
Thank you. And I think that's really key. I think I wanted to write a book that was super accessible, that was engaging, that wasn't written for data scientists. It's not written for statisticians. It's written for everybody who is impacted by data in a variety of ways, and they might not even know it. Increasing that literacy about data, I think, is really vital for us all because it's impacting all of our lives. And I think particularly for queer communities, it's really key. So thank you for the invitation to take part today and your kind words about the book. It's been really great. Thank you so much. 